It's July 7, 2019. DeMarcus Cousins has found a new home in Los Angeles. Kawhi Leonard finally comes to a decision with a little help from a friend. Going to go across the lines with Ringo Starr and you got of the Wu-Tang Clan. Going to review every girl Will Smith dated on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And hater appreciation for those who don't appreciate the new Ariel. Across the country and around the world, across the street and around the corner, this is Over the Culture. Welcome to the Over the Culture podcast, where you get to hear my spin on things I like, like music, sports, sports entertainment, movies, TV shows, and your mama. You also get to hear about things I do not like, like Disney stands, who vow to make Ariel great again. What's up, everybody? I am your host with the least, the bastard of ceremonies, Pat Stayblack, Luke Flytalker, Reefer Sutherland, the one gig kid, Steve G. And this is Over the Culture. latest NBA free agency news, D'Angelo Russell signs with the Golden State Warriors shortly after Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant signed with the Brooklyn Nets because Brooklyn simply can't have all that cat fighting in their backcourt. Early Saturday morning, Kawhi Leonard, the last man of cornrows, signs with the Los Angeles Clippers for four years at $142 million. What? The two-time finals MVP will be joined by all-star forward Paul George. Bro, what are you talking about, man? After playing two seasons for the Oklahoma City Thunder, he signs with the Clippers for four years at $141 million. I'm out, man. I'm Kawhi Leonard's The Last Man of Corn Rose. Former teammate Danny Green signs with the Lakers for two years at $30 million. Toronto, I feel your pain. That's two key members of the championship team gone already. Grand opening, grand closing. I can relate. Do like us Cavs fans, Raptors fans. Cherish that one trophy. Cherish that one championship. Do like Keith Sweat and make it last forever. And ever. And ever. And ever. Also joining the Los Angeles Lakers is DeMarcus Cousins. He signed for one year at $3.5 million. Because with Clay out for a while, Durant gone, Ugly Dollar gone, what's our next best bet? Joining Brian in the Brow. And now we have Boogie in the mix. Boogie Brown Brow. Brow Brown Boogie. Boogie Brown Brow. Brow Brown Boogie. The Pacific Division is going to be interesting. It's going to be a civil war in Los Angeles between the Clippers and the Lakers. Golden State is still lingering around. Sacramento is on the up and up. And Phoenix, uh, I guess we got to see. I'm going to recite a poem. It's called Madness in Madison. An open letter to James Dolan, if I was a Knicks fan. Madison Square Garden, or a garden of squares. 14 million for Taj Gibson, no cap space to spare. You leave your fans in despair, abandoned without a care. You're stinking up the arena while we're gasping for air.
Who picked Isaiah Hicks? Who hired Alonzo Trier? We'll never escape this Manhattan lottery dumpster fire. The hell were you thinking, signing John Jenkins? He's played 30 games in the last three seasons. Reggie Bullock, Kadeem Allen, and Noah Vonley. James Dolan, you're a phallus. Are you really Kanye? Dennis Smith is all that's left from the poor singers trade. Cuban gets another Euro player where his fortune is made. Lately, your decisions haven't earned much merit with all of your eggs in one basket, relying on R.J. Barrett. And then there's Billy Garrett, Bobby Portis, and Brass Dacus. You couldn't give Durant the max and now he probably hates us. Madison. Mad is on. Mad is off. Mad is in. Mad is out. Mad is us. Mad about you. No Paul Reiser. More like Park Avenue Miser. Phil Jackson sympathizer. Who added to the shit show. Inscheiser. Mad is on. Mad is off. Mad is in. Mad is out. Mad is us. On Madison. The show Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is one of my favorite sitcoms. It had a catchy theme song, just about everyone knows it, word for word. Memorable characters, solid casting to play the characters. Great parents, Aunt Viv, Uncle Phil, and my first crush, Ashley Banks. And of course, it was the beginning of Will Smith's acting career. And now, he's one of the biggest names in Hollywood. If it wasn't for the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, I don't know what Monday nights in America would be like. I don't know. I guess we'd have to resort to watching Murder, She Wrote or Designing Women or I don't know. I don't know what else was on on Monday nights. I wasn't watching it. I was watching Fresh Prince. The show ran for six seasons from 1990 to 1996. Throughout that six seasons, Will Smith has dated an array of beautiful women. And most of those women have gone on to be A-list celebrities themselves. Some of them models, Miss America even, and even a Miss USA. So what we're going to do today is review every single woman, season by season, episode by episode. The many loves of Will Smith. The many loves of Will. first apple of Will's eye when he came to Bel Air was Mimi Mumford, played by Victoria Rao. Will wanted to impress Mimi, as well as her father, Dr. Mumford, played by Richard Roundtree, aka Shaft. Dr. Mumford was a hard ass of a father, so to impress Dr. Mumford and Mimi, Will created another identity, Kip Smithers, a high crust, high class prep. Only to realize that Mimi likes bad boys. So Will throws an audible and tells him, hey, you got it all wrong. I'm not Kip Smithers from PrEP. I'm Kip. It stands for conceived in prison. Yeah, conceived with a K. That's hardcore. He doesn't ride for crew. He writes for the two live crew and they let him go because his lyrics were too abrasive. He didn't go to Penn State. He went to the state pen. 
Eventually, Will gets caught up in his lie and he ends up empty handed. We never see Mimi Mumford again. But Richard Roundtree would later resurface in season six as Dr. Gordon Sims. The next love of Will was Christina Johnson, played by A.J. Johnson, in the episode Deaf Poet Society. Will attends an after-school poetry club and makes a poem up on the spot. It impresses the ladies, and Christina in particular. She wants more. Will brings her back to Chateau La Belair and tells her about the urban legend of a poet named Raphael de la Ghetto. Christina, who's wet for words, whose pleasure is poetry, gives Will a wet one on the living room couch and she tells him if you can bring in Rafael Delaghetto to perform one of his poems there's more where that came from but the problem Rafael Delaghetto doesn't exist he's not real so what does Will do? he gets Jeffrey the butler to act as Rafael Delaghetto Jeffrey comes out in an afro wig and dashiki but people quickly see through it cannons to the left Cannons to the right now. We know that's his butler. No Christina for Will. But all is not lost. Jazz comes in with the interception and tells Christina that he's actually Rafael Delaghetto. And gives her a sample of one of his poems. My love for you is like a river. Like a summer breeze that makes my soul shiver. One look from you is more precious than gold. Let's go get some barbecue and get busy. Instant panty dropper. And Jazz gets the A.J. Johnson 1999. In October that year, the Banks family hold a Halloween party. Will and Carlton do some mad scramble mall macking. And Will meets Cindy, played by Tyler Collins, at the food court. Cindy gets an open invite to the party. And she serves Will a peanut butter croissant with a side of love. Cindy enters the party Cinderella style and shuts the whole shit down. No one recognizes her without her glasses and hairnet. They have a good time at the party and when Cindy leaves, she forgets her slipper. She comes back and gets her slipper and gives Will them digits. But Will never calls because he's Will Smith and he's like on to the next. So for Jeffrey's birthday, Will sets him up on a blind date with a British nanny. That British nanny is Helen played by Naomi Campbell. When Will sees this, he throws Jeffries out of his league. They go to a dance club, and while Jeffries doing his two-step with his birthday date, Will strong arms his way on the dance floor, and it immediately goes from tea and crumpets to tea and humpet, from Hitchcock to Hancock, and Will destroys Jeffries birthday date, but all is forgiven. By the end of the episode, Jeffrey feels that Helen is a better fit for Will, and he actually gives him her number. You're a real one for that, Jeffrey. For the next love of Will, we're introduced to Jazz's sister, Janet, played by Vivica Fox. No one could believe someone as gorgeous as Janet could be related to Jazz. But hey, it's a numbers game sometime. They go on their date and they're feeling each other until Janet reveals that she's a real life succubus, a real Ike Turner of a woman. Will instantly realizes this woman is crazy and he aborts mission expeditiously. Will and Jazz find another sucker to pawn her off on in the form of Carlton, and they go on another date. But this time, as Janet's spewing her dragon fire across the dinner table, Carlton puts a stop to it. 
he lets her know, like, hey, this is unacceptable. This shit will not fly. Who raised you? Woman, I'm putting my foot down. And surprisingly, it turns her on. Janet falls in love with Carlton. And this is probably one of the few episodes where Carlton had more sauce than Will. The last love of Will for season one is scholarship student Kayla Samuels, played by Jasmine Guy, in the episode Love at First Sight. Will tries to holler at Kayla and she brushes him off like, nigga, please, with that little boy game. I go to college. You know, Hillman. I'm only here for one episode anyway. Will's ego is bruised and it leads to a yo mama match with Kayla, which later leads to a lip locking match. And now they go together. But Aunt Vivian sees how Kayla dating Will is affecting her grades because now she's getting the D on her test. Will, not wanting to be a burden on Kayla's future, has to let her go so she can tend to her studies. By the time season two premieres, Will has his first Bel Air girlfriend, Kathleen, played by Tisha Campbell Martin. They're knowingly head over heels for each other, and Aunt Viv thinks that they're moving too fast. They need to slow it down. Later, Will would be locked in a basement with Kathleen while experiencing his first earthquake. And it's then that they realize they didn't know each other as well as they thought. They start to get frustrated and lose patience with each other, having petty arguments. And at one point, Kathleen pulls out her contacts, her eyelashes, her nails, and her wig. Damn, Gina. And Will is turned all the way the fuck off. After the dust settles and the smoke clears, they call a mutual split, realizing that they're not compatible for each other. But by the time the school dance comes around, Will already has a date locked in, in the form of Cindy Norris, played by Leela Rashan. Cindy's only seen for one scene when they're discussing the night of the date. Will, who at first was going to cancel the date, changes his mind once Cindy starts talking about what she'll be wearing that night. But Will's broke and he can't afford the tux, so instead of asking his rich family, he picks up a part-time job at a pirate-themed restaurant. The Banks family attend the restaurant and Will serves their table. After serving Uncle Phil with rounds of sneak disses, Uncle Phil finally realizes, oh, this is my nephew serving us. I couldn't have recognized him behind the eye patch and the faux pirate accent. And Uncle Phil's like, dude, what are you doing working? We're rich. We're lit. You see my house. You want a tux money? You know I'm good for it. I'm not even tripping. We still don't even know if Will went on that date with Cindy Norris or how her dress looked. The final love interest of Will in season two is a two for one in episode She Ain't Heavy. Will goes on a blind date with Dee Dee, played by Queen Latifah, who played Hillary's boss in the season one finale, Working It Out. She has a bubbling personality and a sense of humor that matches Will's. They connect on a mental, spiritual level. But because she's not a size six model, Will isn't as quick to claim her as his girlfriend. And after hearing Will's friends fat shame her, Dee Dee storms off like, fuck you and your friends, Will. I'm Queen Latifah. I'll find another light-skinned guy to go out on a date with me. So instead of taking Dee Dee out, Will takes Claudia Prescott out, played by Nia Long, who would later appear in season five as Will's fiance, Lisa. But Claudia is an airhead. She just doesn't get Will's sense of humor. She just doesn't get it. Dee Dee's date is void of personality himself, and her date's going stale. But lo and behold, Will and Dee Dee stick straws up their noses. They turn around, 
and boom, we're friends again. This was the last time we see Dee Dee. Will's first girlfriend of season three is Lindsay, played by Michelle Brianna White. And Lindsay is no Naomi Campbell or Vivica Fox. She's rather plain Jane and nerdy looking. Will's not really into her, but Lindsay keeps lacing him with gifts. Laker tickets, leather jacket, and a motorcycle to match. Eventually, Will calls it off and lets her know that, hey, I'm not really feeling you like that. And she says the same. She claims that she was only dating Will because he was the star of the basketball team. She just wanted to ride the wave. Now, this is the season where Aunt Vivian is pregnant. And in one episode, Will steps in for Uncle Phil to go with her to Lamaze class. This is where he meets Danny Mitchell, played by none other than Vanessa William, former Miss America. Since Danny came by herself, Will steps in to become her partner as well as Aunt Vivian's. Danny invites Will to go to the next Lakers game with him, and they ride to the Forum in style. They head to see the Lakers in a limo, but on the way to the Forum, Danny goes into labor. She has the baby right there in the limo, and Will has second thoughts about his prego fetish. Love Interest 3 of Season 3 is Monique, played by Kim Fields. Will has the whole house to himself, and it's just him and Monique in the living room. Will activates the clapper, which not only just turns the lights on and off, but plays mint condition when you use it. They're on the couch, and Will's on first base. He's moving to second base. He's on third base, and just when he's rounding the corner, there's a screeching halt. Monique saving herself for marriage. She's old-fashioned. So what does Will do? Takes one of his uncle's cars, talks his friend Jazz into acting as a reverend, and they have a fake shotgun wedding. Now that they're fake married, Monique gives Will the golden ticket to her magical garden. Will gets a guilty conscience and comes clean with Monique. He tells her that they really didn't get married and he only wanted to marry her so he can get them draws. Monique knocks him smooth the fuck out. No tootie tang for Will, but he wakes up in time to have a date for that year's prom. And his date is Cindy. We have another Cindy, played by Mary Marrow. Between all of his schoolwork and being a star athlete, it was starting to take a toll on Will. Because by the day of the prom, he's sapped, he's drained. It's motherfucking tired. Doesn't even hit the dance floor once. Cindy, frustrated, wants to dance. She just walks off on Will and leaves him at the prom. And that was it for season three. We're going to revisit this and I'll review the rest of the series. We're also going to go across the lines with Ringo Starr. And you got of the Wu-Tang Clan? We'll be black after these messages. The Mini Loves of Will In today's birthdays, happy birthday to Michelle Kwan, former figure skater and Olympic medalist. She turns 39. Happy birthday to Chris Birdman Anderson. Former Cleveland Cavalier, he turns 41. Happy birthday to Lisa Leslie, WNBA champion, Olympic gold medalist and all-star, she turns 47. Happy birthday to Cree Summer, famous for her role Freddie Brooks in A Different World, and also a seasoned vet in the voice acting game, she turns 50. The famous comedian Jim Gaffigan, he turns 53. Happy birthday to former Houston Rocket and Hall of Famer Ralph Sampson, he turns 59. Happy birthday to Shelley Duvall, actress, producer, writer, and singer. 
who appeared in Suburban Commando, Popeye, played Diane in Cheers. She turned 70. And happy birthday to Ringo Starr of the Beatles. English singer, songwriter, drummer, and actor. He turned 79. That was a horrible English accent. Happy birthday to Doc Severinsen, American jazz trumpeter that led the band for The Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson. He turns 92. Happy birthday, guys. Ninja MC, never come in haphazardly to do away with all you dirty dick dastardlies. Me and the microphone are like Mick and Mallory. Naturally born to make beats casualties. Now in your mind, you a beast, but in reality, messing with some dogs, that's bestiality. I'm saving the day, delivering soliloquies. Enemies in my path, to them I say, Ninja, please. This is the Tower of Steve. No time for you villains who like tugging on my sleeve. Killer 16, ripping everything I've seen. Feel it through your body like a kick into the spleen. Eventually, I wanna hit a beach in every scene. From New York to LA, and everything. Like the stone David sling to bring the line to his knees I go hard in the paint for my ninja MCs The Mini Loves of Will In the season four premiere, we're introduced to Aunt Viv Dose, played by Daphne Maxwell Reed. Not my Aunt Viv. We're also introduced to the latest of Will's women, Jackie Ames, played by Tyra Banks. Jackie attends the same university as Will and Carlton, ULA, on a basketball scholarship. And she also works at the campus bookstore, the Peacock Stop. Jackie has a bit of a history with Will as they grew up together in West Philly. They hadn't seen each other in three years, so when they recognize each other on campus, they dart across the room for a warm embrace, to Carlton's dismay. Only for Jackie to slap Will shortly thereafter, claiming that he never called her after he left, just threw her to the side, forgot about her. Will defends himself by saying, hey, I, I didn't call you because I missed you so much. Plus, it was a weird time in life. I had a lot going on, you know? couple guys they were up to no good started making trouble in my neighborhood i got in a fight my mom got scared and then you know it's just a weird time crazy crazy stuff you know my mom wanted me to get out of town and i just you know my name wasn't good in the hood anymore sorry i'm sorry she would eventually forgive him and also brush off his advances throughout her tenure in bel-air and nothing came out of it more than a homeboy homegirl relationship We'd only see Jackie for eight episodes. Our next Bel Air beauty is Retta, played by Rachel True. Will and Retta go on a double date to the opera with Hillary and Will's professor. Because instead of studying for a class you're failing in, why not just pimp your cousin out to your heartbroken teacher? Come on, Will. We're better than that. But Hillary spoils the fun for Will. She couldn't get past the professor's prominent mole and his bulging Adam's apple. They were instant turnoffs. And once she realizes she's being used as a pawn, Hillary kind of tells Will about himself. Like, what the fuck, cuz? My husband just died on live television. 
and now you're trying to pitch me off to your mole man of a teacher this is one of the few episodes where Hillary is the voice of reason believe it or not Retta must have caught wind of Will's schemes and got turned off too because we never see Retta again Later in the season, music sensation Michelle Michaels, played by Stacy Dash, visits campus. All of the students are starstruck. They're lining up to meet her. They can't believe it's the real Michelle Michaels. They're telling her how great she is, how great her music is. Everyone except for Will. Michelle Michaels asked what's his opinion of her last album. He told her that shit was trash. And Michelle Michaels not only likes that shit, but she loves that shit. To the point where she tracks him down at their bank's residence and invites him out for a date. The family plans a surprise party for Will, whose birthday's coming up. But Will doesn't even attend his own surprise party. He's unavailable. They're paging him. They're calling his Zach Morris phone. And he doesn't answer. He's too busy being in a limo with Michelle freaking Michaels and Whoopi Goldberg and Ray Charles Jack Nicholson impersonators popping bubbly in the limo so they attend a boxing match for their date and it's there when Will gets a rude awakening he sees some random guy just tonguing down his date just PDA PDA at a boxing match and Will steps up to the guy and tells him hey man you can't do that to my date you see this ring I'm wearing she bought me that and the guy responds, yeah, man, she bought me that same ring and shows it to Will. Will proceeds to whip his ass. Apparently, Michelle Michaels dates a lot of men and buys them rings. She had to let Will know that, hey, kid, I'm only here for a good time, not a long time. On Valentine's Day of 94, we see Will and his girlfriend Samantha, played by Amy Hunter, go on a double date with Ashley Banks, coming of age now, with her boyfriend Brian. They go on a cute little putt-putt date, but Will is being a killjoy the whole time and ruins the fun by being an overprotective big cousin. He just couldn't stand Brian acting all mannish with his baby cousin. Throughout the whole date, most of Will's focus is on babysitting Ashley. Samantha feels neglected. Will's not paying her any mind. And she tells him that this is a double standard because Brian is just acting like a younger version of you. He's talking to Ashley just like how you talk to me. You're a hypocrite, Will. And then she just walks off. Will doesn't even stop her because he can't even remember her name. It's Samantha, Will. Samantha. Our next Bel Air beauty is Lisa Adams, played by Cree Summer. And the only thing in the way of Lisa dating Will is her overprotective father, Augustus Adams, played by John Witherspoon. Bang, bang. Somehow, Will agrees to go on a helicopter ride with Augustus. He would later regret it, because while they're in the helicopter, up in the air, Augustus was starting to get weird. Mad weird. And then the helicopter crashes. Will lands just safe enough to where he's not harmed in any way. And then he just leaves Augustus to tend for himself. I don't know. I really like Free Summer. I really like John Witherspoon. But this episode was random as fuck. Later in the season, Uncle Phil is visited by an old flame, Janice Robertson, played by the one and only Pam Greer. And Janice brings her daughter along with her, Wendy. 
played by Elise Neal. Aunt Viv II is not feeling this from the jump. Who is this heifer? Why is she in my house? I don't like her. I feel insecure. Phil, you're going to sleep on the couch now. So Uncle Phil reminisces with Janice over the good old days. And they kind of touch on some things that resurface that you might not want to discuss in front of your wife and kids. Meanwhile, Will hits it off with Wendy. They continue the conversation as Will walks her back to the room they're staying at. But before they depart, they kiss in the hallway and Will's in the game, baby. Wendy goes back into her room and as Will leaves, he runs into Janice. They strike up a conversation and Janice invites him into her room. The conversation is on the surface until Will pulls out the photo album and he sees pictures of Janice naked. Now that he's seen Foxy Brown in all her glory, Will feels like he's got to leave, man. This is an old freak. This won't end well. But Janice is like, nah, you ain't going anywhere. Will doesn't get back home until the following morning. And he sees Uncle Phil. Uncle Phil says, hey, Janice, man, she's a lot of fun, right? And Will's just kind of like, man, uh, I I just, I, I gotta just let the cat, I guess, and the cougar out of the bag now. I smashed the homie. Uncle Phil blurts it out for the whole family to hear. If that's when things get messy, any chance where Wendy is now thrown out the window and we never see Wendy or her zebra striped pants again. And the final love of Will in season four is Dana, played by former Miss USA Kenya Moore. Will and Dana start the episode off by making out in the outhouse, making it a making out outhouse, a makeout house, until Jazz and his wife Jewel crash the party and kill the vibe. Dana leaves because the mood is ruined. And also she's really hungry. In season five, Will and Carlton go on yet another date. Will's date is Valerie Johnson, played by Tim B. Locke. And Carlton's date is Karen, played by Jonelle Kennedy. Carlton decides to get the party started with the movie and throws in Old Yeller. Will isn't having it. Old Yeller? I'm trying to bust down a whole heifer. Scram, Carlton. Go outside and tend to your date, smoking a cigarette. Valerie says Carlton should stay. He's enjoying the movie. I'm enjoying the movie. We're here to watch the movie. Will, who's had enough of this corny shit, steps out himself for a breather, only to come back and see his cousin making out with his date. Will starts hating because Carlton got chose, and this eventually leads to a fight where Carlton knocks out Will with his elbows because his hands were glued to his head. But it was all for naught because we never see Valerie Johnson again. Nia Long reappears in her more popular role, Lisa Wilkes, in the episode Will's Misery. Lisa is a fellow student at ULA who's pledging to cross over into one of the more popular sororities at the university. But in order to join a sorority, Lisa must come up with an elaborate scheme which involves luring Will to a cabin where Will thinks there'll be some sexual healing. But Lisa turns the tables on him, has him hogtied and hanging from the ceiling. Will eventually frees himself from the ropes, and when Lisa returns to the cabin, she apologizes to Will, telling him that this was all just a prank so she can get in her stank sorority. She also lets him know that Carlton was in on the joke. So Will goes along with the joke, and when he gets back home, he has Carlton think that he might have killed Lisa. 
leaving a lot of gray area, a lot left to the imagination, which leads to one of the greatest outtakes in sitcom history. Lisa Wilkes would become a recurring character on the show as we see Will Smith become serious serious for the first time and only time in the series. Will would profess his love for Lisa in a fat suit at the grocery store. He would profess his love for Lisa on the Jay Leno show. Her father, Fred Wilkes, played by John Amos, the goat of TV dads, has even taken a liking to him. They would eventually get engaged and even elope, only to change their minds. But on the day of the actual wedding, Lisa gets cold feet and stands Will up at the altar. But the moment isn't completely wasted because even though Will and Lisa didn't get married, Lisa's father, Fred, and Will's mother, Vi, played by Vernie Watson, they get married instead. Because prior to that, they caught their parents getting it in in the guest room. Ouch. Sorry, Will. You traded in your chictionary for this woman. Back to the drawing board. While engaged to Lisa, Will meets another fellow student named Denise, played by Robin Givens, former Mrs. Tyson. Denise knows that Will is engaged, but she doesn't care. She looks at it as a challenge. She even sets him up with corny riddles like miss me, miss me, only for Will to say kiss me so she can pounce on him. But before Denise wraps Will up in her Robin Givens web, Will puts a halt to that shit and lets her know that I'm a one-woman man now. I'm serious. And if he could do it all over again, knowing Will, he'd probably risk it all for Denise, knowing that he'd eventually get stranded at the altar. But oh well. In the final season, season six, Will and Carlton go on another double date. This time, Will's date is Sandra, played by Garcelle Bouvet, who also appeared in season three, episode three, That's No Lady, That's My Cousin where she played Veronica. And Carlton's date is Tiffany, played by Tamala Jones. They go back to the girl's apartment and they're having a good time until they realize that Sandra has a boyfriend, a big boyfriend. The big boyfriend comes home, interrupts the date and scares the piss and shit out of Willa Carlton and they end up on the ledge of the apartment building. And while out there, they rethink some life choices, like not dating women with boyfriends. And the final love interest of Will Smith is cousin Nikki's boxing instructor, Helena, played by Galen Gorge. When Will finds out that the boxing instructor is a woman, he makes slick comments about how women can't box. Helena, offended by this, challenges Will to a sparring session and knocks out Willie from West Philly. Now that she knows she can knock him out, Helena starts punking Will, starts talking about his mama, starts throwing playful jabs, Will eventually gets fed up with the pokes and the jabs and the teases. He swats her shots at him and apprehends her in an arm lock that at the same time unlocks deep levels of freak that she didn't know she had in her. Now turned on, she hops into Will's arms and he carries her off out of the gym for some post-workout hucklebuck. And that was the many loves and love interests of Will Smith. Freddie Brooks on a different world for 97 episodes. Everybody liked Whitley, but I was Team Freddie. You were one of Will Smith's many girlfriends on Fresh Prince, season four, episode 21. 
John Witherspoon plays your dad, and he didn't like Will. And he ended up getting in a plane crash. That was crazy. And you've been doing voice acting since you were 14? 14? Inspector Gadget, Garbage Pail Kids, Camp Candy, Tiny Toons, Captain Planet, Rugrats, Animaniacs, Pinky and the Brain, Pinky Elmira and the Brain, Batman Beyond, Proud Family, Drawn Together, Robot Chicken, The Cleveland Show, The Boondocks, and so many more. Doing five beats a day for three summers, that's a different world like Cree Summers. You deserve to do these numbers. You put the Cree in creativity. You are the queen of cartoon characters. Cree Summers, you rock. Happy 50th birthday. Today is Ringo Starr's 79th birthday. He was the drummer for the iconic band The Beatles from 1962 to 1970. By 1964, they were already international superstars. On February 9th of that year, they made their first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. And the world was never the same. And that leads us to this week's Across the Lines. He would step across the line. Habitually, he's a habitual line stepper. Line stepper. Now this was the Beatles' first trip to America. It was long talked about and highly anticipated, even more than the release of the newest Marvel movie. Their performance on Ed Sullivan garnered 73 million viewers, almost half the country's population at the time. They were an instant hit in the States. All the teenage boys wanted to be like them, and all the teenage girls wanted them. They were losing their minds, short-circuiting. Their heads were popping off just at the sight of the Beatles on American television. Now this was after Elvis, but this was before the Jacksons, before New Edition, before Chris Brown, before Bieber. Beatlemania was in full effect. The band would go on to be the highest grossing musical act of all time and would continue successful solo careers after the band split. Throughout most of their tenure, Paul McCartney and John Lennon were at the forefront, looked at as the faces of the group. George Harrison would eventually have more presence in the band's songwriting as well as incorporating his use of Indian instruments in the music due to his newfound Hindu alignment. Lennon was the rock star of the group. McCartney was the pretty boy. Harrison was the introverted yet soulful spiritual that the hippies could relate to. And Ringo was the drummer. Universally looked at as a guy that fell into a fortunate situation. Ringo had the most everyday man appeal compared to the others. Sir Richard Starsky was born July 7, 1940, in Dingle, Liverpool, England. He was the poorest of all four Beatles as a child. He lived in post-war low-income housing with his mother and grandparents after his father abandoned them. Lamont Jody Hawkins, better known as You God, was born November 10, 1970. Initially from Brownsville, Brooklyn, New York, he would eventually move to Staten Island, often referred to as the slums of Shaolin as a youth. His group, the Wu-Tang Clan, released their debut album, Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers, on November 9, 1993. It's one of the most influential albums of the genre and has gone quadruple platinum since its release. On April 17, 1992, Ugat was convicted on the grounds of firearm and drug possession, making him unavailable for most of the debut album's recording sessions. With most of the nine members heavily featured on the album, Ugat is only featured twice. His intro verse in the mystery of chess boxing, and he can be heard on the bridge for Protect Gannett. He would eventually get paroled in January of 93. But by this time, the recording sessions had pretty much wrapped up. 
His lack of presence on 36 Chambers would ultimately dictate his career path, as well as how he'd be perceived by hip-hop fans compared to the rest of the group. The success of 36 Chambers made stars out of the nine members, with some stars shining brighter than others. Method Man was the first breakout star of the group, considering one of the songs on 36 Chambers is named after him. He released his debut solo album in November of 94. It has since gone platinum. He would later make appearances on various TV shows and movies like Martin, Belly, CSI, Law and Order, The Wire, and of course, How High, making him one of the most, if not the most, recognizable figure in the Wu-Tang Clan. Old Dirty Bastard would be the next to release a solo project, returned to the 36 Chambers in March of 1995. It has since gone gold. He's had successful collaborations, the Fantasy Remix with Mariah Carey, and Got Your Money with Maya. His larger-than-life personality has been showcased in his music videos, his MTV interviews, which are memorable, and as well as crashing the stage at the 98 Grammys during a presentation, making the ODB persona a part of American pop culture lore. Raekwon was next to release a solo album, only built for Cuban links in August of 95, heavily features the Ghostface Killer. It has since gone platinum, and is widely regarded as one of the greatest hip-hop albums ever. Up next was the Jizza, who would release his Liquid Swords in November of 95. It would receive critical acclaim and has gone platinum since its release. He would also make guest star cameos in TV and movie by appearing on The Chappelle Show and the movie Coffee and Cigarettes. In October of 96, Ghostface Killer releases his debut album, Iron Man, which heavily features Raekwon. It would also go platinum since its release, and with Raekwon's contributions to Iron Man, and Ghostface's contributions are only built for Cuban links, they would cement their legacy as one of the greatest hip-hop duos ever. And Master Killer, having less of a presence than you got even on 36 Chambers, would still provide some scene-stealing verses on his fellow members' solo albums, like Glaciers of Ice from Only Built for Cuban Links, and Duel of the Iron Might from the album Liquid Swords. The same could be said about Inspector Deck, except for the fact that he's heard on seven of the 13 listed tracks. His verse in Cream, Cash Rules Everything Around Me, is still quotable to this day. Not to mention his verse in Triumph is hands down the greatest intro to any hip hop song. Even some of the group members have admitted that they dread following him in songs because he's just that good. In RZA, the Professor X of the group, who brought in all the pieces to form the Wu-Tang Clan, he's made a name for himself as a rapper and producer being the beat maker for all the group's projects, as well as some of the members' solo projects. He's also seen crossover success as an actor, director, and film score composer, providing music for movies like Kill Bill 2 and Unleashed. And then there's You God, who raps as a member of the Wu-Tang Clan. In all due fairness to You God, he's actually a good rapper. You could even argue that he's a great rapper. If you put him in any other hip-hop group, he could hold his own. But in his case, he just happens to be in a rap group with extremely talented MCs who are great storytellers and songwriters, who had more personality, was more marketable. Most of the Wu-Tang had already made themselves household names releasing platinum and gold solo projects before you got even released his album, Golden Arms Redemption, in October of 99. The other members also have the privilege of being present at most of the recording sessions for 36 Chambers and in a way gives them a head start over You Got in building their own individual brands. You Got has even stated that one of the main things hurting his solo releases 
is that they hardly perform new material at the Wu-Tang shows, but rather performing songs from their earlier years, the classics, songs that heavily feature the rest of the group. But where's the love for you, God? In his autobiography, Raw, My Journey Into the Wu-Tang, he states that at one point he was starting to feel looked down upon. The same could be said about Ringo Starr, who had similar sentiments when he first joined the Beatles. A lot of fans were angered that Ringo was replacing original drummer Pete Best to the point where they were holding vigils outside of Best's home, shouting, Pete forever, Ringo never. George Harrison received a black eye from an upset fan, and the Beatles manager at the time got his tires flattened. And in some of his earlier recording sessions with the band, he would get replaced by session drummers simply because George Martin, the Beatles producer, didn't know what Ringo was like and he didn't want to take any risk. By the time the Beatles started recording for the White Album, there was already internal friction within the band. During some of the recording sessions, he would spend most of his time playing cards with the roadie and the road manager, feeling isolated from the rest of the group, seeing that the band was making music without his involvement. And after receiving so much criticism on his drumming from Paul McCartney, Ringo temporarily quit the band for two weeks. Where's the love for Ringo? When Wu-Tang Clan released their 2017 album, The Saga Continues, the group shortened their name to Wu-Tang because it featured all of the members except for You God due to his ongoing legal issues with the group over royalties. You God specifically has been nicknamed the Four Bar Killer, which isn't a great nickname for a rapper considering that rap verses in a traditional sense have been typically 16 bars. And it's really not good when his other band members have shown consistently that they can provide killer 16s at the drop of a dime. The New Yorker did an article covering You God's book around the time of its release. In the title of the article, The Unexpectedly Moving Story of You God, the least loved member of the Wu-Tang Clan. Ouch. But the four bar killer has provided some of the best four bars in the Wu-Tang catalog. Raw, I'ma give it to ya, with no trivia. With like cocaine straight from Bolivia. My hip hop will rock and shock the nation like the Emancipation Proclamation. That shit is dope. Fire, fuego. You got is a dope MC. Is he as dope as Method Man, Ghostface, or Raekwon? No. Does he have the charisma of an old dirty bastard? Probably not. Is he a craftsman like Inspector Deck or Jizza? More than likely, no. Is he as multifaceted in different lanes as the Rizza? Of course not. Even with Master Killer, his saving grace is the fact that he's had verses on songs with other Wu Tang members where he's taken over the show. And with you, God, I don't think we could say that. I don't recall. I really like you, God. Golden Arms Redemption is a solid album from beginning to end, but by the time of its release, the rest of the group had a head start on them, becoming stars even as solo artists working on their second album. Unfortunately, when you're in a hip-hop group, you're automatically going to be compared to your peers. And when hip-hop fans rank their favorite members of the Wu-Tang Clan, the most influential hip-hop group of all time, universally, You God will be at the bottom of the list. You God is the Ringo of the Wu-Tang Clan. The name Ringo has become a term synonymous with someone in a group of friends who's usually the butt of the joke. Ringo Starr himself 
over the years has been joked about and pranked by people both within and outside of the band. Ringo Starr is a highly successful musician who has influenced a countless number of drummers over the years. Outside of his achievements with the Beatles, he's even had a successful solo career. But when you're compared to John Lennon and Paul McCartney, two of the greatest songwriters ever, who created most of the Beatles catalog, when you're compared to George Harrison, who's considered a pioneer in modern world music and also known all over the world for his acts of humanitarianism, when you're a member of the highest grossing, most influential music act of all time, the bar is set pretty high. Ringo will even admit that he's not great at the technical aspects of drumming. He credits himself as just an offbeat drummer with funny fills, but the rhythm and bass section is the heartbeat of the band. And Ringo definitely served his purpose by providing the tempo for those iconic Beatles songs that we've grown to love. Even though You God is usually the least favorite out of the Wu-Tang Clan, he still serves a purpose. His bassy, guttural voice can serve as a nice contrast to a lot of the songs he's on with the other members. In that skit in the 36 Chambers where Raekwon and Method Man are talking about how bad they would torture each other, that was inspired by a game You God came up with called Torture, where you would take turns telling your friends how much pain you would cause them, just to see how far and dark you could go. Just the past time. And it was little things like that that made the Wu-Tang Clan more relatable. Just clowning around with your friends, talking about what you do to them. Like, man, I'll lay your nuts on a dresser. Just your nuts on a dresser. And bang them shits with a spike fucking back. Ringo would eventually get his opportunity to shine on albums. Like when he did the lead vocals for Yellow Submarine. It was different from the rest of the songs on the album Revolver, but it fit within the framework. And even though he had little to no involvement in the group's debut album, You God would later get his chance to shine in later projects. Like in Wu-Tang Forever, he had a song all to himself called Black Shampoo. It was different from the rest of the album, but it was necessary because they needed a song that catered to the ladies, with majority of Wu-Tang Forever being gritty and hardcore. Ringo Starr was an only child who grew up without his father, having no memories of him. And Yugad was an only child. His mother was pregnant with him as a result of a rape. So his father was never in the picture. With both men being raised in poverty, being the only child, not having siblings to connect with, not having your biological father in the picture. For better or worse, you could probably say it's had an impact on how both men have carried out their music careers. And that was across the lines. Day in entertainment history. In 1967, the Beatles released All You Need Is Love. In 1980, Led Zeppelin would play their last ever concert with drummer John Bonham. In 1984, Bruce Springsteen went to number one on the U.S. album chart with Born in the USA. The album spent 139 weeks on the U.S. chart. Also in 1984, Prince started a five-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with When Doves Cry. This would be his first number one single. And in 2010, Paul McCartney joined Ringo Starr on stage at a concert in New York's Radio City Music Hall to help celebrate the former Beatles' 70th birthday. 
Now, this is the portion of the show where we show appreciation to our haters. Hi, haters. According to the Daily Mail, the news that black actor Halle Bailey will play Ariel in the Disney remake of The Little Mermaid has sparked a furious row on Twitter. It was announced July 3rd that the 19-year-old star will take the lead role in the classic children's film, and many have praised the decision to cast a black actor in the lead role. However, some have accused the animation Goliath of tokenism, saying that it is disrespectful to change the way the character looks, and Disney should stay true to Hans Christian Andersen's original incarnation of the underwater character. The Danish writer's original story, which was published in 1837, centers around a beautiful young mermaid who was described as having skin as clear and delicate as a rose leaf and eyes as blue as the deepest sea. Although she lives in the sea with her father, the sea king, and her grandmother, the young mermaid dreams of experiencing life on land only to be met with a rather tragic end. It was this story and character that served as the basis for the Disney cartoon, which has become much loved over the years while the central role is perhaps best known to some for her bright red hair. For many, the decision to cast a black actress in the role of Ariel was met with joy and excitement, with hundreds of social media users praising the diversity. However, some Twitter users voiced anger that Ariel's appearance will change in the live-action remake of the movie, slamming Disney for its decision to stray from the original portrayal. One Twitter user stated, I am Danish, and I am disappointed that they didn't stick to the look they gave her in the original movie, which is a look I really related to as a kid. The Little Mermaid has been my favorite Disney movie since my childhood. I wish they had stuck to the red hair and the pale skin. Another chimes in, a black Ariel? Nice bit of positive discrimination. Let's also make Ursula thin and the prince gay to tick some more boxes. World has gone batshit crazy. She's an iconic character, white with red hair. Many were quick to shut down anyone voicing outrage. Many were quick to shut down anyone voicing outrage, with one user saying, People really out here having issues with a black Little Mermaid cast. White people have more than enough representation in Hollywood. Next, we're going to start hearing that American Congress doesn't have enough white male representation. Others sagely pointed out that the character was fictional, saying she's a mermaid, there's nothing true about it. And yeah, you had a white Ariel for 30 years. It's time for black little girls to feel represented too. Although landing the part of Ariel is perhaps Halle's biggest role to date, the teen is no stranger to the spotlight. The teen shot the fame at the end of 2013, when she and her sister Chloe released a cover of Beyonce's hit, Pretty Hurts, on YouTube. The video quickly went viral, earning the attention of the chart topper herself, while landing the singing duo a record contract. A few years later, they appeared in Beyonce's Lemonade video, and opened for her on the European leg of her Formation World Tour. Hallie and her sister Chloe, 21, also star in the hit TV series Grownish. Please let this be the end of this goddamn fucking article. Speaking about Hallie's casting in a statement, Rob Marshall, who was directing the live action remake, praised the star, saying, after an extensive search, it was abundantly clear that Hallie possesses that rare combination of spirit, heart, youth, innocence, and substance, plus a glorious singing voice, all intrinsic qualities necessary to play this iconic role.
Now, I'm pretty sure most of the people who are complaining about Halle Bailey's casting in The Little Mermaid are the same people who complain about Amanda Sternberg's casting as Rue in The Hunger Game. They complain about Jaden Smith being cast in the Karate Kid remake. And probably the same people who complain about having our first black president without even giving any of them a chance. We can't have shit, can we? The mermaid is a mythological creature. It's half human, half fucking fish. When you're making a movie about mermaids, you should be able to make them whatever color you want because they're not even real. Red mermaids, green mermaids, purple mermaids, orange mermaids with horns coming out the back of their head. Oh, don't take our fictional characters. Don't touch our fictional characters. You're taking our land. They're taking our jobs. They're taking our cartoon characters. Shut the fuck up. Hey, you monolithic-minded moviegoers, trust me, there's more than enough representation for white folks. You'll be alright. Black people, we don't have enough positive portrayals for the world to see. Way too often we're portrayed as the crook, as the thief, as the killer, as the slave, as the pimp. So this casting of Halle Bailey is very necessary. And how about this, since we want to stay consistent? The original Disney cartoon was set in the Caribbean. And the last I checked, I haven't seen too many pale-skinned redheads coming from the Caribbean. I never have. But they probably wouldn't mind having Lindsay Lohan as Ariel, even though she can't act, can't sing, don't want to hear her sing. I actually don't even want to see her face on a screen. But as long as our Ariel is white, Everything is all right, right? For years, we've endured white actors portraying black characters, fictional and non-fictional. For years, there were white actors wearing blackface, portraying themselves as actual black people, instead of, well, you know, casting actual black people. And they would act so coonish, talk so coonish. Oh, yes, Lord, uh, how they do, sir? Oh, yeah, I don't know what I was going to do today. Uh. How about the film Argo? when Ben Affleck portrays Antonio Mendez, a Mexican-American who worked for the CIA. Ben Affleck is white, mixed with white. Or how about the time when Mickey Rooney was in Breakfast at Tiffany's and he played a Japanese landlord? To extreme stereotype. Or The Last Airbender, based on tribes of Asian and Native American descent. The people who played the main three characters have nothing Asian or Native American in their ancestry? Or how about when Lawrence Olivier portrayed Othello? Othello is a Christian Moor, meaning he's dark-skinned complected. So what did Lawrence Olivier do? Painted himself in blackface, of course. Or when Natalie Wood played Maria in a West Side Story. Maria, the character, is Puerto Rican. Natalie Wood's people are Russian. Elizabeth Taylor played Cleopatra, the last pharaoh of Egypt. Fun fact, people. Egypt is in Africa. I've never been to Africa, but I'm pretty sure none of the people of Egypt look like Elizabeth Taylor. The Conqueror was a movie that came out in 1956, focusing on the rise of Genghis Khan, the Mongolian emperor. The Mongolian emperor. So who did they have portray him? John fucking Wayne, who hails from Winterset, Iowa. He has nothing Mongolian in his family tree. 
How about the film Exodus, Gods and Kings, where Christian Bale plays Moses? <laughs> yeah, they figure if he can play Bruce Wayne, he can play Moses, right? Why not? Nobody would say anything. Or how about the time Mr. Brokeback Mountain himself, Jake Gyllenhaal, played the Prince of Persia? Yeah, nothing needs to be said about that one. And one of my favorites, Joseph Fiennes, a white guy from London, portraying Michael Jackson, a black man born in Gary, Indiana. And I get it, Mike bleached his skin, but come on, bro. You could have found some high yellow dude to do that. Somebody that can actually dance? Chris Brown could have easily taken that role. At least he'd be a better fit than Joseph fucking Fiennes. Now you delusional Disney dickheads can protest, scream at the top of your lungs till you get pulmonary hyperextension. You can choke on your goddamn popcorn kernels for all I care. But what I do know is I will be watching the movie and supporting our sister Holly Bailey because I feel she's the perfect Ariel. She has the singing ability, she has the acting background, and she has the image of innocence to fit within that Disney universe. Enjoy the show, everybody. So that wraps up another edition of Over the Culture Podcast. If I had to pick out of all the ladies that came through Bel Air, my favorite would have to be Wendy and Janice Robertson because it was a two-piece mother and daughter and on Over the Culture we love moms man Will was halfway there Pam Greer Elise Neal with her zebra pants but Phil had to spoil the game damn Uncle Phil damn slushes over lushes smoothies over boozies Alright. Peace.